As the ship approaches the harbour at Barfleur in Normandy, bells start to chime. There are churches scattered all around this busy port town. In all of them, joyful citizens are tugging on ropes, filling the air with a sweet clanging and peeling. The closer the ship gets, the louder the bells seem to sound. When it's right up alongside the harbour, the creaking of the wooden hull and the flapping of ropes and sails is barely audible at all. Because now, as well as bells, there's the rising sound of hundreds of human voices. According to the biography of William Marshall, self-styled greatest knight in the Plantagenet world, there are people of all ages swarming in Barfleur's streets. Old and young formed long processions, singing as they walked. The song they're singing goes, God has come with all his might. Now the King of France will have to go away. It's a catchy little ditty. Even better, the people of Barfleur believe it's true. They're blasting out their triumphant tune and making all this fuss because the ship that just pulled into the harbour contains none other than their ruler, Richard the Lionheart, King of England, Duke of Normandy and Master of the Plantagenet Empire. Richard's been away for years, first fighting the Third Crusade, then being imprisoned by the Emperor of Germany. During that time, Philip Augustus, the King of France mentioned in the song, has done serious damage to Normandy. He has snatched castles and hoovered up land, all ably abetted by Richard's conniving and treacherous younger brother, John. But now, in the summer of 1194, Richard is back. And if there's one person who really has proved over the years that he has it in him to make the French king go away, it's the Lionheart. When the king steps off his ship, it's pandemonium. People are rushing up to Richard, trying to give him gifts and their best wishes. I'll let Marshall's biographer take up the story again. He had folk dancing and tripping gracefully around him all the time, so that he took no step on road or over field without having all around him such a great, dense, overpowering crowd of joyous people that you could not have thrown an apple in the air and seen it land. Harry Styles, eat your heart out. Richard must be absolutely delighted to see such a display of love and affection from the people of Normandy. It's not like he needs a boost for his ego, but he'll take it all the same. Deep down, though, Richard knows that he has big, big problems. In the time he's been away, Philip Augustus has been very busy. He swiped almost half of Normandy, stirred up major trouble in Aquitaine, and he's threatening the heartlands of the empire in Anjou, too. Plenty of Richard's supporters have been wavering, wondering if Philip is the coming man, and if they should throw their lot in with him instead. They're asking themselves whether the whole Plantagenet project is a bust. Richard has to prove to them that it's not. That's going to take a monumental military effort, a lot of political charm, and absolutely sackloads of cash. 
He's not rolling in the latter, having had to bleed England to get his ransom paid. And his military is weakened too, after years away fighting Saladin. As for charm, it's not always been his greatest strength. But before Richard gets to any of that, he has to show how he deals with people who betray him. The most egregious traitor of all has been his brother John. Now Richard is in Normandy, it won't take him long to hunt him down. But the question is, when he finds the no-good, faithless little worm, what on earth should he do with him? I'm Dan Jones, and from Something Else and Sony Music Entertainment, this is History, Season 2 of A Dynasty to Die For. Episode 10, Payback. In the Middle Ages, well, in any age of history really, there are a million and one nasty ways to punish someone who's done you wrong. You can go down the Old Testament route, an eye for an eye. In Richard's case, that would mean taking the view that since John has despoiled and given away his land, he should now do the same to John. So, strip him of his French lordship of Mortain, Confiscate all his tasty and highly lucrative lordships in England. Make him live off scraps. And maybe chuck him in jail for a bit to let him know what that feels like. That would definitely be one option. Another might be going medieval on his ass, in the way that Quentin Tarantino meant it in Pulp Fiction. Hanging, drawing and quartering hasn't been invented yet. We'll have to wait another 90 years or so for that but one of Richard's predecessors did chuck a man off a tall tower for getting on the wrong side of him. And there are plenty of sharp, rusted implements that can be stuck into all manner of places you wouldn't want them. No one could blame Richard if he decided to try a range of them out on John. So yes, that's option number two. But Richard has another, even more devastating trick up his sleeve. And it's an absolute doozy. The sort of thing that only a brother could think up. It's less Old Testament and more, well, New Testament. But hold on, we'll get to that. The first thing that Richard has to do is actually find John. France is quite a big country and Richard doesn't have a lot of time. Fortunately, he has one great advantage. He knows his brother well, and when the heat is on, John melts like an ice cream in a warm car. When Richard was in jail and he found out John was causing him all sorts of grief, Richard said, My brother John is not a man to win lands by force if there is anyone to oppose him. In a macho, warrior-like culture, Richard's basically saying that John is a snivelling coward. So in summer 1194, Richard banks on John's yellow-bellied cowardice working in his favour. He's right to. 
After landing at Barfleur, Richard goes to stay a few nights at the grand house of one of his supporters, a guy called John of Alençon. He's in a bit of a state while he's there, so preoccupied with everything he's got to do to win his empire back that he's suffering from insomnia. But he perks up when a message arrives at John of Alençon's house that his brother has come crawling out of hiding to find him. Brother John had been at a town called Evreux, which used to be Plantagenet territory before Philip claimed it for France. But now John leaves it to come and make his peace with Richard. That's right, Richard hasn't even had to go looking. Remember last episode, when we heard how one of John's supporters in Cornwall actually died of fright when he heard that Richard was 350 miles away. This is the same effect in action. John doesn't die, but he shows up with his tail very firmly between his legs. He's hoping that by coming to find Richard, rather than forcing his brother to go looking for him, he's going to at least soften the punishment coming his way. It might be the first sensible thing John has done in years. Because once he arrives, Richard puts his plan for retribution into action. He summons John to his presence, so that he can find out his fate. Back over to the biography of William Marshall again. Trembling with fear, John came before the king and fell at his feet. But the king lifted his brother up by the hand and kissed him, saying, John, have no fear. You are a child, and you had bad men looking after you. Those who thought to give you bad advice will get their just desserts. Get up now and go and eat. Then he sends him off to John of Alençon, to find out what's for dinner. As it happens, it's salmon. A huge specimen has been sent as a gift by one of Richard's well-wishers. Now, I know what you're thinking. What the hell kind of a punishment is a kiss on the cheek and a tasty fish supper for a man who has effectively been caught trying to burn the family house down? But think about those words carefully. You're a child. You were given bad advice. We'll get the naughty men who told you to do the silly things. John, at this point, is 27 years old. He's far from a child. And they both know he wasn't given bad advice. But Richard is doing two very smart things. On the one hand, he's giving John what in diplomatic circles these days is called an off-ramp. That's to say, he's providing a way for John to accept defeat without having to eat too much of the brown, stinky stuff. It means that there can be a reconciliation between the brothers. Because no matter how awful John is, unless Richard plans to lock him up or kill him, which he doesn't because the political fallout would be horrific, he has to find a way to bring him back on side. John is very definitely one of those people you'd prefer to have inside the tent peeing out rather than the other way around. Yet Richard isn't letting John off scot-free. He has actually read his brother brilliantly. All John's life, he's had to endure being the little kid, 
the youngest brother, John Lackland. The one who gets the bum jobs like being sent off to Ireland instead of having fun in France. While Richard was away, he got to play at being a big boy. Now Richard is putting him right back in his box. I think this is designed to be psychologically devastating for John. But in such a way that he can't possibly complain. In other words, it's a masterstroke from the Lionheart. As he sits down beside John and they tuck into their gigantic salmon, Richard must be doing his best not to laugh like a drain. There are plenty bigger battles lying ahead, of course, but for now he can say that he has well and truly got one over on his daft little brother. And as any sibling will tell you, there aren't many sweeter feelings than that. What I love about history is not just that it's full of amazing stories, but that these stories tell us so much about how we got where we are today. And if you're listening to This Is History, you probably agree. So that's why I'm pleased to recommend a podcast I think you'll love, Throughline from NPR. On every episode, the hosts take a story from the news and go back in time to where it started to answer one important question. How did we get here? Episodes take you on unexpected journeys through all kinds of subjects, like what history might have smelled like, where credit scores came from, and how China became a global superpower. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause. NPR's throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed, giving you a valuable perspective on a world that doesn't always seem to make sense. Listen now to Throughline from NPR wherever you get your podcasts. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. Days after being reconciled with John, or humiliating the little twerp, depending on how you want to look at it, Richard sets out to start taking the war to Philip. When it comes to the French king, there's going to be nothing psychological or subtle about the Lionheart's retribution. His first stop is the castle of Verneuil, in the borderlands between Normandy and France. It's Richard's castle, but Philip has it under siege, and the garrison there is getting desperate. They've managed to get a messenger out to Richard, begging him to come and help them. 
The messenger lets Richard know the score. Philip has siege machines smashing away at the outer defences of the castle. They're hurling rocks at the stone walls. The troops have the castle cut off from food supplies. And they're putting the all-round fear of the Almighty into the defenders, yelling and whooping as they taunt the men inside. The men inside aren't going down without a fight, though. They've drawn an insulting cartoon of Philip on the stout wooden gates, goading the French king about his inability to smash them down. But they can't hold out much longer. A big section of wall has come down. If Richard doesn't get there ASAP, another of his precious castles is going to change hands. Richard doesn't need much encouragement. He has plenty of troops with him. He brought over a hundred ships from Portsmouth, all of them heaving with warriors and weapons. But Richard has to work out the best strategy for saving Vinoy. If he blunders in headlong and tries to draw Philip into a battle, he's risking big casualties, at the very least. And this is just one battle of many to come. A sneakier approach is better here. So Richard splits his forces in two. He sends one small but hardcore band of knights and crossbowmen to break through Philip's defensive lines. If they can get into the castle, they can give the defenders some much-needed support. He trusts them to find the weakest point in Philip's position. And they do. Meanwhile, Richard leads the rest of his men on a long ride all the way around Philip's defenders, keeping out of sight until they get to the rear of the French forces. While they're there, they take aim at the supply lines that are keeping Philip's troops fed and watered while they're in the field. It's sound generalship, and it weakens the position of the besiegers immensely. Yet for once, it's not what earns Richard victory. What does that is Richard's secret weapon. Not a siege machine of his own, not a new style of cavalry charge he's picked up in the east, not a magic sword like Excalibur. No, Richard's secret weapon is John. We've all heard the old maxim, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Very seldom do you see it put so spectacularly into practice. While Richard is on elite manoeuvres around Vinoy, John is somewhere else entirely. Remember the hidey-hole John had? Before he went creeping back to Richard to say sorry for being a naughty boy? He was in a town called Evreux, which had flipped from Plantagenet to French. Well, as Richard goes to Vinoy, John goes back to Evreux with some troops and a smile on his face. Understandably, the French garrison at Evreux are pleased to see him come back. They have no idea what's gone on between him and Richard. John is all sweetness and bonhomie and suggests they have a meal to celebrate his return. All of them. It's a classic trick. Not a subtle one, granted, but reliable. 
when the men of the garrison sit down to break bread with John, he gives a signal. His troops rush into the room and slaughter every last one of them. The town that used to be Plantagenet and then became French is Plantagenet again. That's what you get when you hop into bed with John. On the one hand, you can't trust him. On the other hand, nor can anyone else. The effect of the massacre at Evreux is exactly what Richard needs. Philip Augustus himself is at Venouille, where Richard has made a targeted strike at the supply line feeding the besiegers. When the French king hears about what's happened at Evreux, he saddles up and rides over there, taking a detachment of his forces with him. By the time they get to Evreux, John has scarpered, and the French take out their fury by sacking the city, burning churches, and destroying holy relics. Which, to be honest, is just punching the wall. It hurts, and now the wall has a hole in it. So, for that matter, does Philip's besieging force at Vernoy Castle. The men there have been told to stay in their posts while the king deals with Evreux, but they don't obey their orders for very long. The French position is terrible. A week before, they had the castle surrounded, were smashing down its walls and could taste victory. Now the castle has been reinforced with more English defenders, their own supply lines are cut off, and their king has disappeared to deal with something else. Plus, it looks like Richard is about to flood the area with even more Plantagenet troops. Less than 24 hours after Philip rides off, his troops desert Verneuil. Richard has won. True, it's only one battle. True, the war has a long, long way to run. And true, Richard has committed himself to working with his brother, the most abysmal, untrustworthy, feckless piece of garbage the Plantagenet dynasty has ever produced. But you know what they say. You can't choose your family. What's more, Richard has a plan for how he's going to take the war all the way back to Philip. It's going to be audacious, expensive and slightly scary. He's going to make Philip feel like the sky is raining blood on him. Literally. But I'll tell you more about that next time on This Is History. Before you go, just a reminder that the Plantagenet drama doesn't end here. If you get on This Is History Plus, then you'll discover that every Tuesday, when episodes drop, I also release an extra episode, full of weird, wonderful, and sometimes completely random stuff we don't have time for in the main story. What's more, as a subscriber, you'll get all our episodes ad-free. Just visit This Is History on Apple Podcasts and click Try Free at the top of the page to start your free trial today. Or visit thisishistorypod.com to get access wherever you get your podcasts. Finally, if you're enjoying the show, please do give us a rating or a review. It's a great way to support us and help new people find the podcast.
Hi everybody, before we go, I just wanted to say thank you to all of you for listening to This Is History. We hope you're loving the show as much as we love making it, and we want to hear from you. Your feedback goes a long way, and it only takes a few minutes. Just head to thisishistory.fans on the browser of your choice to answer a few questions. We're so excited to hear from you. Thanks for listening.